Hey everybody, welcome to a very special episode of Liquid Flannel. We love to cover local issues, political issues, and we rarely have an opportunity where there's an issue so big, so local, that we can be the boots on the ground covering this in a way that no one else can. Right. That's right. But that's why we have Chuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, something, you know, we, something we can't cover on the regular show because we want to dedicate quite a bit more time to it. Absolutely. It's really interesting when you have a, a story like this that definitely ties into more than just a regional conversation, but a national conversation in general. You know, the last year we've seen all kinds of fighting over the Dakota Access Pipeline up in North Dakota. And now that was kind of like setting the stage for the Keystone XL pipeline drama that's been going on for nearly 10 years now. Right. And it essentially culminated this last week or about two weeks ago with a three to two vote from the Nebraska Public Service Commission where they did okay a pipeline to go through Nebraska for Keystone XL but the catch is that it is the alternate route, not the main preferred route that TransCanada and Keystone XL originally wanted. So really, in a way, this this kind of left everybody flabbergasted. No side was happy, so that might be a sign that this is the best thing right now because it does everything but actually finalize what's going to happen. You know, it leaves a it opens a whole new set of doors. And it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. So Well, and I think no matter what happens, I mean, now that they are actually taking steps to move closer to actually start constructing this pipeline, you know, it's not over, right? I mean, right. there's still going to be so many legal challenges, probably from both sides, right? Of saying, hey, we didn't get the route we wanted from the oil company side. And then from all these farmers and ranchers who said like, well, I, I'm not on the route. So I don't care. And now they're like, oh, they're now talking about a route. different route. Sure, right. So th this is just the beginning of a whole new phase oh, yeah. in the process. Okay, so to, to back this up just for a second, just to bring people up to speed, the Keystone XL is a proposed pipeline extension off of the main Keystone pipeline. Mm -hmm. This all comes from the Alberta tar sands, which if you've ever seen footage of it, I mean, the... This is like the ugliest form of oil mining where they literally just scoop up the entire landscape and then run it through <laughs> right. a bunch of gas-powered processors to extract this really dirty, nasty oil out of there. And so the uh, Keystone XL pipeline has been proposed to go from Alberta all the way down to my neck of the woods to ship mm -hmm. out of the Gulf of Mexico, probably in or around Houston, and send this oil off to other places in the world, mostly China, probably. Right. Right. So it's going from Canada through the U.S. and then off to foreign countries to be shipped out of the U.S. It doesn't even make sense that the U.S. should even be wanting this at all. Right. It's exactly. absolutely ridiculous. Well, exactly. You felt like under the Obama administration, there was, uh, I mean... The leadership had one foot in the idea of, well, let's just not make any waves and just see what happens because, you know, there, there were some pro-corporate things that Obama administration was hey, fine I with. I heard it was going to create like 500,000 jobs. Exactly. Right? You know, the, you yeah. know, the companies naturally pitched was you save know, all these jobs. The truth of the matter is they were all going to be temporary contracting work and only about 33 to 35 
permanent full-time jobs would actually be created sure. in the area, if that. And those so, are going to be the the guys who basically their job is to drive up and down the pipeline every day and make sure that it's not leaking oil onto farmland or above the aquifer, as happened literally like a week ago when like hmm. 210,000 gallons of oil just like spilled in the middle of fucking South Dakota. Right. Well, and we'll get there in just a second. But, but just think you know, of all those cleanup jobs. You guys just aren't taking the long right. view. You know, this. think Come about on. all those paper towel manufacturers right. that we're going to have to work in overtime. Don dishwashing <laughs> but... liquid stock went up. I actually own some Procter and Gamble. So yeah, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm in favor. Well, you know, during Obama's administration, he declared that they would only approve the project if it didn't worsen carbon pollution. Which was kind of like his way of saying, you know, if this is going to be obviously bad for the environment, we're not doing it. So we're essentially not doing it unless you can prove. Oh, no. You know what, man? I'm sorry. I've got to pull my environmentalist card here because that is such a stupid and shitty reason to oppose this pipeline. I mean, if it will worsen the the carbon situation, of course it's going to. (laughs) Right. It costs it costs like a dollar to get this oil out of the ground that you can sell for a buck 10, you know, mm. and and the dollar is all energy. It's other fossil fuels that you're burning to get it. It threatens natural habitats. The original proposed route was right through the Nebraska sandhills, like where the sandhill cranes come right. every year for their migration, you know, and all of these routes pose significant risk to the Ogallala aquifer, just because of how porous and fluid it is Absolutely. within the state, within the soil. Which is know. literally where like everyone in Nebraska and in lots of places in the Midwest oh. gets is like their only fresh water source. Yeah. Well, and it's this also is... the reason that the breadbasket of America is that. Like, because there's a whole bunch of underground water. If we poison that, I mean, we're talking about, literally we're talking about threatening the biggest export of the United States over this like five company project to get the dirtiest fucking oil out of the ground, not even in our country. And we don't benefit from it because we're going to ship it all to China. Well, right. So Obama was able to get through without having to put an order and actually basically said, no, we're not doing this. And then Trump comes in and part of Trump's style has been, well, everything Obama didn't want to do, we're doing everything that he did want to do. We're not doing. So he reopens the application process to TransCanada, who files a new application. Basically, everything is set to go, and it's all resting on the Nebraska Public Service Commission to give the green light. And basically, the Nebraska Public Service Commission was so tied in their decision that they weren't even legally allowed to use the South Dakota spill that just happened you know, last week with over 200,000 gallons of oil spilling. They weren't allowed to use that as a basis for whether or not to approve this pipeline in Nebraska. Right. Well, because apparently statutorily, the Nebraska Public Service Commission is prohibited from considering safety issues when they make a public services decision. And that was from a 2011 law introduced in the legislature by uh, Kate Sullivan and Annette Dubas. I believe Annette was the primary on that. But this law, when you read it, it starts to say, the pipeline carrier shall have the burden to establish that the proposed route of the major oil pipeline would serve the public interest. 
In determining whether the pipeline carrier has met its burden, the Commission shall not evaluate safety considerations, including the risk or impact of spills or leaks from the major oil pipeline. (laughs) But the Commission shall evaluate, and it gives a list of things, but one of the things it says it shall evaluate is evidence of the impact due to intrusion upon natural resources and not due to the safety of the proposed route of the major oil pipeline to the natural resources of Nebraska, including evidence regarding the irreversible and irretrievable commitments of land areas and connected natural resources and the depletion of beneficial uses of the natural resources. Now, here's the craziest thing. Nebraska is considered a nonpartisan, single-body legislature, unicameral, but both of these senators... They're Democrats. They're registered Democrats in the state, and they introduced this bill. It's crazy. I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter who introduced it, Democrat or Republican, because it's still not a genuine concern to who your constituents should be, which would be landowners, people that use the land agriculturally, et cetera. Well, and also people who who use the land and know that they would get like a gas well and get some kind of payment into into their estate every year. But, right. you know, I, I think it is important to note you would expect this from Republicans. Right. But this is why environmentalists don't trust. This is why environmentalists vote green in presidential elections. You know, like mm-hmm. the Democrats are always going to sell out the environment as long as they can keep their seat, because mostly their district is run by like rich landowners who seem to not give a shit. Well, and this Annette Dubas, this is crazy. I mean, she farms and ranches corn, wheat, alfalfa, Angus cattle, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I guarantee you that she is out there. I mean, I know a little bit about cattle ranching. Like, there's mm-hmm. no way that you're in, like, mid-Nebraska. There's no surface water. Of, of You've got wells drilled all over the place, you know? Right. But I, well, I'm also going to bet that that pipeline doesn't go anywhere near her property. Well, here's another thing about her property, which is interesting. She accepted an undisclosed sum from TransCanada to allow them to park their equipment on their land during construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. So she's received money from them to park their equipment. She's introduced this bill on their behalf. And then she was one of like 20 senators, state senators, that signed a letter to Hillary Clinton saying, we're concerned about the environmental impact this may have on the cranes and the sand hills and all that shit. And everyone's right. like, can you really say that after you've really kind of... Uh, you've been aiding and abetting these people. The- right. Exactly. And she's like, well, this actually shows that, if anything, you know, I'm able to keep an open mind and stuff, you know, because <laughs> I was able to take money and still right. think it's a bad idea. It's like, well... That still fucking sucks. It was awesome you to know? take this. This, uh, yeah, no, she's she's fashioning herself as like a Robin Hood, right? Like right. I let them park their stuff here because mm-hmm. that allowed me to take all of their money, and now I'm going to put that into. No, she's not funding some environmental super pack in fucking Nebraska. Are you kidding me? Right, that's crazy. But hey, she supports same sex marriage. <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh man, and that. That is Nebraska politics. It's Nebraska politics. When I was like looking all this stuff up, and one of the things I needed to look up was eminent domain, because I thought that that was supposed to be something that's for public use and for the community. It's not like for a private for private corporations to profit off of Americans. And private foreign 
companies to profit off of, you know, Americans land. And one of the things that I had found in my eminent domain quest was an executive order that was signed by George W. Bush protecting the property rights of the American people. The policy on that, real quickly, is the policy of the U.S. to protect the rights of Americans to their private property, including by limiting the taking of private property by the federal government to situations in which the taking is for public use, with just compensation, and for the purpose of benefiting the general public, and not merely for the purpose of advancing the economic interest of private parties to be given ownership or use of the property taken. Right. Well, it, this this goes back to I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a lawyer card here. Um, there's there's a supreme <laughs> right. there's a Supreme Court case. I'll do this quickly. It's called Kilo versus City of New London. This is a Connecticut case where a uh, private enterprise wanted to condemn a bunch of. I mean, it was mostly like low income housing, and they wanted to mm-hmm. build like a kind of gentrified commercial district, and. The city went ahead and gave them the right to condemn that, and a lawsuit was like, well, this isn't even a governmental taking. The government's not taking the property. Some private enterprise is, and what the Supreme Court ended up deciding was like, no, it's okay because it is for a public purpose because this private enterprise will create a bunch of commercial activity in the area, and that'll benefit everybody. So Sure. We can argue whether that's good law or not i guess but i think that the thing here is that it almost doesn't apply because that argument that it'll create jobs that doesn't really apply here in nebraska at least it's been fleshed out in the details a lot of those public benefits that could be argued in that case i just don't see that they can be argued here yeah because there's no public benefit to this pipeline I don't it know. just as a member of the public, it just makes me feel good to know that some dirty oil is just getting shipped through. So like I'm, yeah. I'm feeling the benefit already, right? Yeah, there. totally. Right. I mean, just Brendan, living you, large. Brendan, you you work in something completely unrelated to fossil fuel extraction, but you know that like things will get better for you generally <laughs> because there will be like 35 more pipeline men who may (laughs) stop through town every once in a while and, like, buy a burrito at the fucking quick stop along the interstate. Right. You Mm -hmm. guys forgot about Trump's executive order where owning the libs is a public good. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's right. right. Nailed it. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And now they're talking about how... So the decision was a 3-2 decision with the Nebraska Public Service Commission, and people are even saying that the two people that voted no that those people are going to get challenged by people that were upset that they voted no. Now, I mean, the Nebraska Public Service Commission, this is like five people that are sitting on this thing, three Republican, actually four Republicans, one Democrat, and three of those Republicans ran unopposed in 2012. Right. You know? So this is not like some hard thing. It's just that nobody even knows that this is a thing. Right. Sure. And now this thing is making a decision right. that could have monumental impact on the region and the right. country. This is one of those things where you go to the ballot box to vote for president. And 100%. You go, what is all this other crap on here? <laughs> right. I don't even know what this You're means. Like, I'll just fill it in because I got to complete this thing. You know, sure. that, That's literally all it is. But now it's um, having a real consequence. You yeah, know? absolutely. Well, and I think, that's a, I think that's an important thing. Before we go into your interview, you know, that 
you look at the the elections in 2017 and the number of people who they just ran against traditionally unopposed like republican seats and unseated republicans you know so maybe that's a thing that we should be doing right now like actually legislatively replace the legislature and maybe we wouldn't need to worry so much about the like the administrative actions taken it's a two-prong attack and that's definitely one of the prongs you know yeah i think the other prong to it you know, so you've got the one prong, which is to actually care about these elections and unseat people. Right. But the other prong is to do a better communication job because these people that literally in this state that support, you know, executive orders that protect landowners and private property people, that's like a conservative tenant. Yeah. And, and now all of a sudden they're okay with this foreign company coming through taking land from Republican landowners or conservative landowners and using that for their own benefit, privatizing the gains and socializing all the losses when that oil spills, like we just saw a week ago, a couple hundred miles north of us. Right. So that's, that's a thing where it's, it's a, you know, ostensibly conservative uh, lawmakers and administrators. And then you've also got conservative landowners and those two camps their incentives don't align anymore with this decision. Right. Well, and part of it is because money talks, you know. So you've got all of these groups getting money from TransCanada. One of the things that I had put in the Slack channel here, which was kind of a highlight of how they do this, was that Lincoln Gay Pride. So TransCanada was going to give Lincoln Gay Pride a $5,000 donation, which was the largest donation that you know star city lgbt pride has ever received from anybody right and it was also the first one that they actually had to refuse yeah because this issue is so toxic literally pun intended but (laughs) (laughs) but the thing is that's what trans canada does they're like man these people have never seen money just start flashing it around yeah and people you know you think about it for a second there and i'm sure that a lot of people wouldn't have even batted an eye if there was a TransCanada booth over at at Pride, but then when it start, you know, when these kind of decisions hit in, you're like, how did they creep in? Oh, they're gay friendly. Oh, you know, you they know, don't want to kill minorities. These, oh, you know, <laughs> these fucking yeah. these fucking fossil fuel motherfuckers have decided that they're <laughs> like the uh, like the entourage of uh, like American politics, but there's still a bunch of like really boring old gross white dudes in suits who like wouldn't ever attend a street festival you know so obviously like gay pride organizers are gonna be like no we're not we're not taking your money like we we wouldn't want to share a fucking cafe with you (laughs) right you know they're like we want freedom for everybody including landowners you know that aren't feeling free right. when these people are coming in with these easements so this is really kind of yet another example of big money influencing nebraskans in a way that makes us look nationally um kind of weird you know so well it's, um, it's also of international importance because if this oil does easily get out of alberta i mean that's that's not going to help anything on the the global climate change fight. That's right. 
That's why we're so excited about this episode, because we had the opportunity to interview Art Tandrup, who is one of the leading opposition forces on this case, uh, Keystone XL pipeline. He's been fighting this thing for almost 10 years now. He's been featured on farmaid.org and a member of the Cowboy Indian Alliance, a group that organizes to oppose the Keystone XL pipeline. Sure. This guy has been on Fox News talking about this issue. He's been recently on CBS and a whole slew of other networks. So we're we're very fortunate that he was able to take time out of his schedule and do an interview with Liquid Flannel. So hopefully you all enjoy that, and uh, we'll go ahead and play that. Take me to... Where I'm still a new face Where I have a good case That I am sincere Where that night is calling Where the snow is falling Where I So joining us today, we've got Art Tandrup, a rancher in Neely, Nebraska, who has been fighting this uh, issue or been on the front lines of this issue, rather, for almost a decade now, isn't it? Uh, Yes. So how did you get involved personally with this Keystone XL, and how long ago was that? Actually, we became really involved in uh, after the May of 2012 decision to uh, make a reroute off the first original route when we uh, actually found out that we were we were on the uh, newly proposed KXL route. So what's your initial reaction to this current decision that was just released? Well, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm very disappointed that it wasn't a total rejection. One of the things the Public Service Commission is supposed to do is to protect our natural resources. Nebraska, our greatest natural resource is our water. The water that's in the Ogallala Aquifer, the waters that's in our streams, in our rivers, the water that both feeds out of that aquifer into those streams and also feeds from those streams and rivers back into the aquifer. That is our most precious resource in this state. And that resource covers most of this state. And, you know, it's difficult for me to understand why all of those people did not stand up to protect the water. And I know 
you know, they aren't supposed to talk about safety. And that's because TransCanada was able to get that written into the uh, original law about uh, pipelines in the as well as into the rules and regulations. But it also talks about the threat to the soils uh, and the type of fine sandy soils that we have here on the northern part of this route. And obviously this route, only about 40% of the preferred route is left and 60% was taken off and placed into this alternative route. Now on the positive side, there is a positive to this. Oh, good. That TransCanada did not get the route that they wanted. Those representing them that were in the courtroom, they weren't jumping up and down with joy. Uh, you know, we didn't even see a smile on their face when the decision was announced. And we've had a very weak response from TransCanada about this. They aren't jumping up and down with joy either, saying, saying, okay, let's let's get started, let's build. So, you know, and then the one, th- or, well, there's there are several things that could turn out to be quite optimistic about the decision yesterday. Um, one of those is the fact that this, since this route, or, or the 60% of it, that got changed, it's not, uh, you know, was not on the preferred route it has not had the environmental studies done at both the national level or the state level. So consequently, uh, you know, the commission approved a route that really hasn't been authorized by any, by any agency. So there could be, you know, that state, Department process is going to have to be all gone through. Uh, you know, the Nebraska Department of Environmental Quality is going to have to go through through that process that they uh, that they went through before. They're going to have to be public hearings, you know, and so forth. Another issue is the fact that we now have a whole bunch of landowners that basically had. Well, until yesterday, and they still may have no idea whether they're on this route or not. The map is is not extremely definitive. You cannot, uh, you know, you cannot pinpoint an exact location. So, uh, you know, the work begins with education of these landowners, and that's that's going to be a very important. Uh, important issue before TransCanada comes in and starts slapping easements down their throat. Sure, sure. Of course, there's another option, and this one may happen. TransCanada has the option to appeal yesterday's decision. Of course, you know, that's basically right now everybody's waiting for TransCanada to make their move. To react. Yeah. We're in that chess game. They ha- it's their turn to make a move because we really can't do anything until they decide what they're going to do. And we can be wishful and think that maybe they'll decide not to build this because they have to have investors. They also have to have suppliers. We know they've been having trouble getting suppliers. 
uh, investors, a lot of the green groups have been working on divestment for the last several years. We saw how everybody, you know, in the DAPL fight, go to access fight, we've seen, you know, the divestment from Wells Fargo, for example. And we've started to see some, you know, from the foreign banks that help fund the tar sands. So they're, you know, they've got to get this money someplace to build this thing. That happens with this route change is the fact that, uh, you know, they don't have some of the infrastructure in place that they have in place on the preferred route. They have locations along the preferred route for pumping stations, and most of the uh, Nebraska Public Power running, getting power close to where those pumping stations are going to be has taken effect. One of those pumping stations requires 360,000 kilowatts of electricity every day. This amount of electricity don't go plug those puppies in. (laughs) Right. So, so, uh, anyhow, we know, you know, Nebraska Public Power has gotten into the green energy some, but a, a lot of the energy, you know, that much uh, that much energy to run these things is going to be coming from our coal-fired plants, which is, uh, you know, another another uh, dirty fossil fuel that's that's uh, been out there. So anyhow, they on on this alternate route, they have two pumping stations. One of them's up in northern. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's in Holt County or Boyd County. It's up in. It's up along the Niagara, close to the Niagara River, up in there someplace. And the other one on this on this particular route that they purchased the land for is northeast of Neely. And I know for a fact Nebraska Public Power had to run a significant power line to within a couple miles of that location. Uh, they will have enough power to supply it. So that power station has been, or, you know, substation, and I mean, it's huge, uh, has been up and running now for at least a year, I think, even more than that. And then, I, this is Art Tandrup talking, and I don't know, you know, I don't have, this is something that may be correct or may not be incorrect, but just basing on about on the approximate 50-mile placement of these pumping stations, those, when this preferred route, it uh, turns east in uh, uh, east of uh, Oakdale, Nebraska, or west of Tillman. It turns east, and then it goes over into Madison County and over to um, the really south part of Stanton County, where it will twin or go right alongside of Keystone 1. The pumping station, it's going to need a pumping station in that area. And the pumping station on Keystone 1 is back uh, west of Stanton. Now, I realize you can't use the same pumping station, but you may have enough power infrastructure there to build them next to each other. So, you know, it's like they aren't going to align up with each other. 
result unless they make some special or put in super high-powered pumping station someplace to get them back coordinated. You know, they're going to have they're going to have this power issue all down to Steel City, Nebraska. So um, those are significant cost increase. They're also going to have extra costs of trying to get easement on these extra miles of pipeline. Now, obviously, on Keystone 1, they already have the easement. And I feel very saddened for those people, you know, whether they wanted that Keystone 1 or not, they're going to they're gonna have another pipeline built across their farm. And, you know, that's not really what they signed the dotted line for back at the beginning. So, yeah, so it, it's going to be costly. And whether whether they can, you know, round up the money to do that with the price of tar sands these days, so, you know, they know that uh, there's some reason that the tar sands market is going to skyrocket. And, you know, every indicator indicates it is not, that it's going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper is what's going to be happening. And so, you know, in this, in this move to renewables, is another switch here. Uh, we're going to, you know, with the timing of this, you know, they're going to be, if, if if they decide to pursue this alternate round, my estimation, and that may or may not be correct, is at the minimum it could take three to five years. That's a minimum. Wow. If they decide to go the court route and challenge the decision yesterday, depending on the court, how the court, how fast the courts are there, I think that's going to be a faster process two to three years mm-hmm. before there's a final decision on it. Sure. So, you know, this this decision sounds like it was a curveball, not just to opponents of the Keystone XL pipeline, but to Keystone XL as well, and also not least of which would be these new landowners who, as you had alluded to, may not even be aware that they now fall onto this property line. So this question may be a little bit premature to ask, but since this change in route suggests that not every landowner originally thought to be affected will end up being affected, and some that didn't think they would originally be affected are now going to possibly be affected, how does that affect which landowners are in favor or oppose this and I guess another way to ask that would be, have you noticed any relationship between whether or not a landowner supports this based on whether they think they're safe from this action? Uh, well, I think it, it, it's probably, you know, we don't even know who these landowners. I know one, I know one of them for sure uh, that lives in the Tilden area. And when this when this alternative route was proposed for the Public Service Commission, for a short period of time, they posted a little bit better map, and that disappeared after a while. And he, he had it figured out. It would come pretty close to coming through the kitchen. But, uh, uh, you know, obviously they would stay a few feet from his house. And, uh, you know, the other landowners, uh, when you get over along the Keystone 1 line, Many of those folks over there will tell you to this day that Keystone One pumps crude oil, and that's what they believe. I just had one two weeks ago tell me that. <laughs> okay. They pump crude oil, and that's how great 
propaganda machine for TransCanada has been. So, you know, I don't think they're going to have a problem. If I remember right, there were less than 10 people from, you know, from the Nebraska border to South Dakota down to Steel City on Keystone 1. There were less than 10 landowners that had real concerns about Keystone 1. So most of those people are going to, you know, they're probably going to fall in line. You know, we love TransCanada type thing and so forth. However, you get down to the Seward, Nebraska area, and the last time they got uh, a Keystone 1 is in questionable distance of their uh, water, water wells for the city. That has been quite an issue. So when they propose this alternate route, TransCanada is kind of making a bump out around that water protection area, wow. uh, you know, the, uh, with the thought that they won't have any trouble. But, uh, you know, those, uh, and those be all new landowners out in that area as well. So, you know, we don't know what their feelings towards it are and so forth. So, you know, it, it's a mixed bag right now. The thing I think I know, Bold Nebraska is stepping into action and they're going to have educational meetings about trying to figure out who's on the route and, you know, and get these people out to meetings and have our legal team there or part of our legal team there to discuss with them you know, legal ramifications to having this pipeline, what it really means. You know, after the hearing in August, we have, you know, new information that we hadn't had before, uh, you know, and probably the big thing that I think will attract the interest of a lot of farmers along that part of the route is the fact that if, if that pipe is through that farm, that that farm, not just the easement, will be devalued, the property value will be devalued by 15% if you go to sell it. Plus the fact you have to have an environmental study done on that. And uh, previous to that, uh, TransCanada had used an economist and basically said, this is what you we want you to tell everybody, and so we want your study to come out this way. And that was, it was proven at hearing that that uh, that his economic model was flawed and uh, the gentleman that did it for us that his is correct so uh, you know, like for example on my farm uh, that would amount to about hundred and forty thousand dollars in devalued property at wow. the current price of land here mm-hmm. so you start yeah, you start talking to farmers about that. And <laughs> they pay attention. You know what what the <laughs> what they think about pipelines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, part of what made this story compelling has been, you know, all the recent events that have been happening. Most notably, that Keystone XL uh, oil spill in Marshall County, South Dakota that spilled over 210,000 gallons of oil about 250 miles west of Minneapolis. How, if at all, has this uh, recent event played into your talking points or the talking points of people opposing this pipeline? Well, 
I hate to say that a pipeline spill might be a gift because no pipeline spill is good. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the timing of this one was incredible. Yeah. Uh, I I feel for this farm. I mean, that ground is ruined. Yeah. And they're still trying to figure out water. You know, they up in that area, they have pockets of water. They have pockets of aquifer. You know, there's not, you know, here, for example, on my farm, I can go out and drill a well, any place, you know, mm-hmm. just start drilling, drilling for water and we'll get water. I mean, I can guarantee it. Mm-hmm. Up there, you know, you might, you might drill 20 test wells and then have to go five, 600 feet deep to get water. Hmm. So, you know, it, it's a little bit different up there, but yet there could be there could be some of those areas where water is going to become contaminated, and cleaning that up is going to be impossible. And I think cleaning the whole mess up is going to be in the impossible area. And we all know from kind of the history of pipeline spills that when the pipeline company comes out and says X amount of gallons spilled, you can generally at least double that number by end of the game. So, uh, you know, and that's not true in all cases, but, but the number is always more than what actually was claimed to have spilled in the beginning. Sure, sure. So you you have a serious problem there. And cleaning this up, you know, they're going to have to be hauling all that soil out of there and replacing it and so forth. What a terrible thing to happen. Had that happened on our farm here, north of Neeling, Nebraska, within just a few hours, that chemical in in that substance would have been in the aquifer. And I I think, Chuck, you were out here last spring to the planting, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Right before that. Two days in the two days before that, we had three inches of rain, and we went out and planted corn. Nobody got muddy, you know. With three inches of rain in most soils, you've got mud puddles sitting around. There's no way we would have been able to plant corn. Right. And here, it it made a beautiful planting condition, just moist sand. So it's you know our sand here is very porous, so those chemicals are going to filter right through that. Uh, at a very rapid rate. And because of that, it's not going to take it long to go down to that, you know, depending on where it's at, uh, you know, 30, 40 feet on my farm, 30 or 40 feet to where it uh, starts hitting that water, uh, that water sponge that we call the Ogallala Aquifer. For some of, uh, for some of the landowners that are, that are like north of Atkinson, for example, North O'Neill, up in that area, I know one that was that talks about within half a mile on this pipeline route. They go from an area that that they have to deal with blowouts on, where they where it's difficult to to keep the uh, keep the sand from blowing and eroding. And within a quarter mile, half a mile, they have land where at times of the year the aquifer comes out of the ground. So they would have to be laying that pipe in two extreme conditions there. And the second being they would lay that pipe literally in the aquifer. So if it were to leak there, 
I mean, it would be totally, totally a gruesome mess. Yeah. Well, you would think that, and at least to, you know, the average person, they would think that an issue like that spill up in South Dakota would be a sign to leadership, to legislatures, to, you know, the commission that this is not a good idea. But shockingly, I saw in the AP this week an article titled Nebraska officials say the SD oil spill won't affect their pipeline decision. And it was from a 2011 law that was passed in the unicameral titled the Major Oil Pipeline Sitting Act. Now, in that act, there's a, a specific spot that says that the commission, or in determining whether the pipeline carrier has met its burden, the commission shall not evaluate safety considerations, including the risk or impact of spills or leaks from the major oil pipeline. Who would write that kind of language into a bill like this when their constituents, in theory, are landowners? Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, you bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, TransCanada had good lobbyists. Mm-hmm. They got that put into the law for a very, for a very good reason. So that, and it's been, you know, it's been difficult going into that hearing and during that hearing this summer where we, quote, couldn't talk about safety. And just like, you know, they, you were just saying, they couldn't, uh, the commissioners couldn't consider safety. But also in that, also in that law, and in the rules, it talks about protecting our natural resources. And our natural resource, you know, our greatest natural resource in this state are, is that aquifer, the rivers, lakes, and streams. So it's an impossible task to say you got to protect your resources if you can't talk about safety. Right, the thing that can threaten that resource, you can't talk about that. It's almost, yeah, yeah. it it, it yeah. seems like wasted yeah. energy, yeah. you know. Exactly, exactly, and that needs to be changed. That absolutely needs to be changed. And you know, uh, just this afternoon, in the few minutes I've had between interviews, I've <laughs> I've been seeing up in South Dakota one of their uh, well, they call it the Public Utilities Commission in South Dakota, and one of their commissioners is very upset about this bill, and they have. In South Dakota, they have an option to pull TransCanada's permit. Really? Really. And I, I just started reading about that, so I don't know all the details, you know, and, and what things have to get into place. But, uh, you know, they, they at least have an option, and this, this commissioner is very upset about this, and I, uh, back when when we were doing the construction com- permit, and I was an intervener in that case up there, uh, and there was hope that this particular uh, commissioner would uh, vote, uh, uh, you know, against granting the permit. Uh, they only have three up there, but it's so, you know, it's a two-one to win, and all three of them uh, voted to approve. But uh, with this situation happening, we need to keep a close eye on what's going to happen in South Dakota, because if they can't run a pipeline for South Dakota, they can get to Nebraska. So 
you know that's kind of an important uh important question now whether whether that person can get the other two to uh to agree to that that that's going to be a difficult decision so yeah so that safety issue is a, is a big thing and in conjunction with that uh, spill up there i was reading an article uh the other day about how TransCanada and other pipeline companies, Enbridge and uh, others, one of the tricks that they've come up with over time, you know, they run what's called a, a pig, a smart pig, down through the pipe, and they use these to separate shipments as well as to inspect the insides of the pipes. And those things, uh, you know, they're like a computer. They have software. And basically, they can they can turn down the sensitivity of you know of finding the cracks or finding any small leaks, etc. So you know the pipeline companies, you know, they find everything they can to keep those things, uh, you know, to keep those pipelines full and running. And you know, because if they found a crack or admitted they had a crack or a uh, a very tiny leak, uh, you know, they'd have to be shutting them down. So they just instead they just wait for a two hundred and ten thousand gallon spill. You know, when when this issue came up, I'd started to look a little bit into uh, what eminent domain is, and when I was looking through that, I ended up finding an executive order that was signed in two thousand six by George W. Bush, protecting the property rights of American people. And real quickly in the policy there, it essentially says that the United States will protect the rights of Americans to their private property, including by limiting the taking of private property by the federal government, in which the taking is for public use with just compensation and for the purpose of benefiting the general public and not merely the purpose of advancing the economic interest of private parties to be given ownership or use of the property taken. And the thing that I kind of wanted to stress there was not merely the purpose of advancing the economic interest of private parties, because this case, it, it's clearly advancing, you know, the economic interest of Keystone, which seems to be a private, non-American corporate entity. So do you think that there's a disconnect between landowners and property right advocates who supported Bush-era executive orders such as this and the current types of leaders that now are in favor of this style of eminent domain acquisition? Or do you think that there are two different groups of people altogether? I, well, I think a lot of them are the same people. There are obviously some of them that are, are two different groups of people. But this this has been... Uh, you know, this property rights issue has been a significant issue to every landowner along this route. And just believe that a foreign corporation, a foreign corporation should have the right to take away American land for their greed and their profit. Nobody should have that. And traditionally, Property rights has been a Republican value, a strong Republican value. But when it comes to pipelines, it seems that that value gets thrown out the window. So, you know, and in those cases, 
the politicians are seem to get paid well by the American Petroleum Institute and uh, other uh, providers of bribery money. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, you know, this, this is totally wrong. Uh, it, it is absolutely totally wrong. And, you know, and, and I'll, I'll just give a comparison here. Great. For example, you know, up in our area, we've got a lot of wind development up here. Wind developers do not have the right of eminent domain. They have to find willing business partners with farmers and ranchers. And and they, too, have things that run in straight lines, and they're called electrical lines between towers. Right. If a farmer says no between two places they want to go, they have to go around because they don't have the right of eminent domain. And that's, you know, one of the things. I'm totally opposed to this pipeline on so many reasons. But TransCanada refuses to find just the willing participants. Uh, and they have refused to that. And yet I have heard in a Nebraska legislative hearing where they stood up and said, oh, well, people that told us that they didn't want it, we, we went around them. And it's like, what the heck are a are, uh, hundred of us doing trying to stop this thing? So, uh, you know, just another one of their lies and propaganda that they put out there. Well, information here tends to be the critical part in terms of at least exposing, you know, some some of this cognitive dissonance between the property rights type groups and the groups that might be supporting this since there is a little bit of overlap on that Venn diagram or maybe even more than a little bit you know uh i i know that you had mentioned that your next move is essentially waiting to see what how Keystone Excel responds to this issue and and what they're going to do. But in the meantime, you know, kind of the last question that I had was, how can people, if it's still possible this late in the game, how can people uh, get involved or show solidarity? Well, in, in Nebraska here, obviously, um, you know, one of the one of the things that we've been doing is well. We go clear back to the clean energy barn down northwest of York uh, that we built uh, over four years ago, you know, where we're putting clean energy in the path of the pipeline. And uh, this fall, we've been working on what's called Solar XL. And we're putting solar arrays in the path of the pipeline. Uh, we have one down southwest of Silver Creek. And as of yesterday, that one is no longer on the route unless TransCanada appeals and gets the route back. The uh, the second one that we've installed is up in uh, northern uh, Holt County, and it's up and running. Uh, we have another one that uh, was postponed from being installed uh, up in um, Kiapaha County, uh, like just like two or three miles from the South Dakota border. Uh, we're, we're working on trying to get more of these clean energy solar arrays set up right in the path of that pipeline. By doing that, you know, they're going to have to tear down clean energy to make dirty energy, and it, uh, it gets the media's attention. 
you know, people can help out by donating to that cause at Bold Nebraska. Um, they can they can also, you know, we, we have a fantastic group of pipeline fighters that live in the cities of Nebraska. Uh, you know, and actually all across the state we have we have people that have been strong strong opponents to this pipeline forever. And we appreciate every one of those people. You know, they showed up yesterday. They show up, you know, they show up when we have an event here at our farm. Uh, they show up everywhere. And, you know, we, if you're, if you're concerned about this and you haven't participated in any of those things or, or the solar builds, whatever it might be, uh, get involved. Watch the Bold Nebraska website for, uh, events and different things that we're doing. Uh, become engaged in this. Go out and, you know, tell your friends and neighbors what a disaster this would be for Nebraska. You know, I think it's safe now. We were told beforehand we couldn't, uh, you know, we shouldn't contact the commissioners. Uh, contact the commissioners. Uh, you know, uh, thank the two ladies that stood up and voted for us. Mm -hmm. uh, the other three probably can't talk any sense into their heads because <laughs> they need to feel the same right. way. They got too much lobby money in their ears, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have a piece of equipment I can clean those ears out with. But uh, anyhow, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, become involved. Mm -hmm. You know, there's uh, the only way things get done anymore is, is you have to make your voice heard. And the next thing that's going to be happening, two of those people are up for re-election oh. this next year, in 2018. And we heard yesterday there are several people that are saying, hey, I'm going to run for one of these positions. You know, I think we're going to have pro-pipeline people that are going to be out there, uh, and they're going to be running against these incumbents that voted against us. Oh. So uh, that's important. Another thing that's important is to we need to get people into the legislature that are pipeline fighters. When these bills come up that say we can't talk about safety on the pipeline, you know, that should never be made into law. When we need to get bills through the legislature that change eminent domain so that you cannot have eminent domain for corporate gain. And in order to do that, we need people that are not close to the governor. We need people that will listen to the people of this state and make reasonable decisions down there. So, you know, come on board, support these candidates that are out there. And, and you know, it's important to find out where these candidates stand on these issues and to, uh, you know, get out there and support them, help them get, help them get elected, get out there and, Walk the walks with them. Talk to the people in their district, etc. So those are those are some things I think people can be doing. That's a great idea. Are you know I I know that the legislature definitely is on people's minds at least more so nowadays than in the past. But elections for public service commission, I feel that that definitely flies under many people's radar. So this is uh, this is something that you know there's there's no group too small when it comes to fighting fighting this kind of stuff on behalf of the ecology and definitely direct people to bold Nebraska. Is it just bold Nebraska.com or. Uh, yeah, there's uh, what I, I think it's org. I think. 
if you if you search for Bull in Nebraska, you're gonna find okay. It, you know, and also uh, you know, uh, uh, friend them on or like them on Facebook. You know, yeah. Uh, so so that you get their you get their feeds. Um, because you know things are probably more things are updated faster on Facebook anymore than they are on the actual web. So, uh, <laughs> Very true. But do both. Do both. Okay. And uh, you know, be uh, be knowledgeable. Great, great. Well, Art, I just wanted to take a moment and thank you on behalf of all of our listeners for your time. It's been incredible to talk with you so close to these uh, major events, and definitely. Uh, keep up the fight, and you know you've got solidarity from the Liquid Flannel audience. <laughs> so, Thank you very much, Chuck. It's good visiting with you today. Excellent. You have a good night, Art. Bye-bye. We were also able to get Ken Winston on the phone. Ken's an attorney for the Bold Alliance and Sierra Club in the Nebraska Public Service Commission proceeding opposing the Keystone XL Pipeline. So we'll go ahead and take another break here real quick, and then we'll jump into that interview and close out the episode. Okay, well, essentially, I just wanted to ask what people's reactions are and what your personal reaction is and your connection to this case. And then also, I guess there was news that TransCanada is asking the Nebraska Public Service Commission to uh, reconsider its order that approved the alternate route versus the proposed preferred route. So basically those kind of things. And then finally, of course, how people that are opposed to the idea of the pipeline can find optimism in this recent ruling by the Nebraska Public Service Commission. Sure. Well, well, first of all, it wasn't what we wanted. We wanted to see the, the Public Service Commission deny their application. But this is much better than what TransCanada wanted, because TransCanada wanted just to have their original application granted. So the fact that the PSC granted an alternate route 
creates a lot of uncertainty about the process. So overall, my sense of it is that it's a, it's a victory for us because uh, for, the, for the opponents because of the fact that, that it makes it more, well, first of all, TransCanada will have to deal with a bunch of new landowners. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the potential for requiring new environmental impact statements or in, environmental impact, environmental reviews. And then it also creates a bunch more uh, new adi- additional legal issues. So there's a, several things that, that make it more challenging for TransCanada. So we think that, that it was a victory for, for us to have the, the TSC grant a, just support a, an alternate route. Now, in terms of people's reactions, there are a lot of people who are really upset with the fact that that um, that it wasn't denied. That it, and and I understand that because a lot of people, well, I've been fighting it for seven years, and a lot of people have been fighting it for many years too. And people are tired of having to deal with this, and in particular the fact that that President Obama denied the permit twice. So. I think there's a lot of, and then of course there are people like Art and and people on the northern part of the route who are still in the route, and and so so they're in a situation where they're having to continue to fight it, and so I uh, have a lot of empathy for all those folks who are who are still uh, stuck with having to fight it. But I think overall, the the other reason that I think it's a victory is that it creates, because of the uncertainties that I just described, those are in addition to the other challenges that TransCanada has in in in, in terms of well, they're uh, earlier this year. I, I don't remember exactly when it was. It seems like it was around May. There was a report that came out that, that uh, TransCanada was having trouble getting enough shippers. To um, to use the to uh, buy capacity on the pipeline, and there were all there were also some reports that they would um, that they were trying to decide whether they wanted to to continue to go forward with it. That they that they'd spent a lot of money on it, and now they were wondering whether it was worth continuing to go forward on it. So the more complicated and the the more drawn out it is, the more likely. Uh, it, the more it creates pressure on TransCanada to to scuttle the project, because if it's going to be more years of of trying to go through the regulatory process, well, I think it, it's going to be harder for them to sell to their investors. So, so those are the that's the basic rundown of of things. I guess recently, actually, I think maybe it was within the last couple days, the TransCanada has asked the PSC to reconsider that approval that they gave to the alternate route. What are your thoughts on that? Well, and and actually, the other thing is, well, the, the landowners also filed a motion for reconsideration. So there's two motions for reconsideration. And we may file one too. And, and I just saw that the, the Plunkett tribe joined the, the landowner's motion. So there's motions for reconsideration from a couple of different directions. So there's likely to be uh, some kind of a hearing on the issue of reconsideration. And, and maybe there'll be 
the PSC may ask to to have more uh, briefing or not. I'm not sure. But the the main thing is, uh, I think that at this point, it's it's unlikely that that well, in my experience, it's unlikely for a tribunal to change its mind about something. Now, it, it's certainly possible, but I would be surprised if they would change their minds just given the fact that, well, they've just gone through eight months of sitting through hearings and, and having all kinds of, of uh, and being bombarded by information from all different directions. And after you've gone through all that and you've had a, reached a hard decision, well, they made the decision, however they, they achieved it, and now they're in a situation where, okay, well, what do we do now? Uh, do we reconsider what we've done? Well, most people that I know don't change their minds unless they're really confronted with something startling, like new evidence or something like that. And so it's my thinking that it's unlikely that they'll change their minds. Well, I mean, I guess just thinking in terms of human nature, I mean, uh, you know, if you're having an argument with somebody, how often do you say, oh, yeah, you're right? <laughs> right. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and in particular, this is a high-profile, highly politicized issue. I'd just be really surprised if they would change their minds after going through what they went, went through to get here. So I, I have a feeling they will. There may be a hearing, but I have a feeling it's unlikely that PSC will reverse themselves. Okay, sure. So I do have to ask a question for the cynical side in me, and if you can't speak to it, I totally understand. But uh-huh. with the PSC, this decision to approve an alternate route that would, as you said, involve much more in terms of you know talking whether it's talking to landowners, um, the launching sites, et cetera, all these other regulatory issues that may come up. Um, and, you know, inspections and everything, it almost seems like I just don't see what the motivation is and the cynical side in me almost. I'm wondering, on the one hand, it is possibly because they just want to make sure we get everything right. But on the other hand, the cynical side of me thinks it's let's just punt it down the way until it's no longer economically viable for this company and we can wipe our hands of it later or that way, you know. Um. Well, I don't know what their motivation was. As a political observer, it looks like it was intended to be a compromise. And, of course, the fact that it was a three-to-two vote, you had two strong dissents saying we shouldn't approve anything. And and then you had the three men on the commission. You know, the two strong dissents were from the two women on the commission. And the three men, I mean, it looks like the kind of thing where... Yeah, in from years of being around politics where they wanted to be able to say to both sides, okay, well, we compromise between your position and their position. So so that's kind of the way it looks to me. Now, what their motivations were, whether whether some of them wanted to have it be a way to to let it sl- die a slow death or is anybody's guess right (laughs) yeah well they certainly aren't saying 
So, uh, but that would be, I mean, overall, I, I just think it's more of a victory for us than it is for TransCanada. I mean, ideally, we would rather have it be just denied completely and, and not have to deal with it anymore. The upside to the battle still raging on is that it's not over. Yeah, and the fact that TransCanada, I mean, the longer it goes for them, the more money it costs. I mean, and the more likely, from my perspective, the more likely that their investors will go, gee, this isn't worth it. So. Well, it may just prove that old saying right, um, that one where a good negotiation, everyone walks away a little unhappy or something. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was... That may have been the intent. Those who supposedly approved it, they may have wanted to say, like I said, that it was a compromise, and that way they can say that they gave each side some of what they wanted. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to do this interview and provide the statement there for me, Kent. Yeah. You have a great night. You too, Chuck. Take care. So we're really grateful to Art for that interview. Uh, this has been a special Keystone XL episode of Liquid Flannel. I'm Matthew Hodges at MattheGuid on Twitter. Brendan Williams is with me. Brendan? I'm at Brendan Williams with one L. And a very special thanks to Chuck Williams, who lined up this interview and got us this amazing opportunity. And did a great job. Thank you very much, and you all can find me at Shaggy2Trope. And thanks again to Art Tandrup and Ken Winston for the interviews in the episode. Also, special thanks to Brandon and Parker from the Omaha Talks podcast for letting us record part of the episode in their studio. And a special thank you to the band Frontier Ruckus for letting us feature their song Ogallala in the episode. You can find the song on the album Way Upstate in the Crippled Summer Part 2. Thanks to all the listeners out there. This has been Liquid Flannel Production. We'll see you next time.